Amber Blair, and welcome back to Dermcast. Today, we're sitting with Dr. Jocelyn Kirby, Associate Professor of Dermatology at Penn State University. Thanks for coming and talking with us. Thanks, Amber. We're talking about hair loss and how not to pull your own hair out while trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient's hair. This is a fun topic, and we see it in clinic all the time. Where do we want to start? Tell me a little bit of a background to your hair loss patient. So I think that the topic for this meeting, I loved the title that I was given by the organizers because I think it captures so much, how to manage hair loss without losing your own. And I think part of that comes from a couple of things as providers. And I'll speak from my own experience and people can see if it kind of hits home with them. One is a lot of times our patients with hair loss come in with some significant, I think, emotional concerns about their hair loss. And I think recognizing that this is really valid in our society, the appearance of hair, having eyebrows, eyelashes, the head of hair that we have and we display to people really is important to getting ahead of life. And I was really surprised by some of the research that I found that showed, you know, when you appear attractive and, you know, taking into account that hair is part of how we judge each other on attractiveness, you're more likely to be considered a good date. Being a good date might lead to other things, getting married, find a finding a partner, that appearing attractive can increase your upward mobility in your career. These are really important things. I was also surprised that uh, attractiveness was likely to decrease your bail and result in having a more uh, positive outcome if you ever were going to have a judgment against you in court. So um, having attractiveness and having hair is not just a minor concern. These are really significant concerns. So to really realize the research behind this and our patients' concerns made it easier for me to go into the room and really engage in this as a significant medical problem with them. I believe often our patients come to us and we're not the first person that they've spoken to about hair loss and maybe have not gotten some resolution in other areas. So it's important to think about that when we're moving forward. How do you approach these patients when they walk in? So that's so great, I agree. I think a lot of times people have not been sure who to go to for their concern about hair loss, or they didn't even realize dermatologists existed, or they just haven't gotten the answers they needed from the place that they've gone to. And so I think the first thing I, I try and do is just listen. So I know that we're busy. I know that we really wanna dig our hands into, you know finding a problem for their solution, but I always have to remind myself, let them talk, let them have that chance to express what their frustrations have been, what their ideas about what's causing their hair loss or what a good treatment for them is. And that's when I move into the exam and helping to tell them what I'm seeing in the hair itself, in the scalp. And that's when we can come up with a plan together. So I think the management of the patient is listening, then looking, and also sharing the findings so we can come up with a shared plan together. Talk me through your exam. I've been using dermoscopy a lot more lately. I find that it helps me to gather clues to make me more or less concerned for a scarring form of hair loss. If I do see a scarring form of hair loss, that's a really important piece of information for our patients to know about because it says something about the prognosis, the risk, and maybe the aggressiveness of what we want to do with our patient to control that process. So dermoscopy has really helped me to gather more clues both about scarring and non-scarring, but also about for people who are having diffuse forms of hair loss. So we think a lot about telogen effluvium versus androgenetic alopecia. And dermoscopy has helped me to gather more clues 
from those two forms of hair loss, so it cuts down on my biopsies. What do you do from a lab workup standpoint on these patients? Great question. So I don't tend to do a lot of lab work for my patients who have telogen and effluvium. I tend to take a good history. I look at their other medical problems. We're looking together to see if there was some form of medical, psychological, surgical stress on that patient that may have triggered this. But it's a pretty uncommon day that I'm doing lab work reflexively, it's usually based on some kind of information I'm getting from the patient or their history. We're coming into a time that there's some exciting new medications on the horizon. Talk to me about that a little bit. So I think there's a lot of really nice options for management of alopecia. One of my goals is to try and find the best evidence for my patients going forward. There's always a lot that is marketed to patients for hair loss. It's an uncommon day where somebody hasn't come in saying, I was heard about this on the radio or on TV or a friend said this or that. And I usually try and find what are the studies that can really guide our practice to give our patients the best evidence. The things that I tend to talk to my patients about are minoxidil or Rogaine, a great over-the-counter medication. It's available and uh, branded as well as generic forms, and it really can work. So I tend to stick with the 5% for both male and female patients. And I use it for multiple forms of hair loss. I don't find that minoxidil is picky. It's you know gonna help anybody thicken their hair, uh, even if it doesn't completely regrow new follicles. Um, I've looked into more the low laser light therapy, so the red light caps and combs, mm -hmm. and they actually can work. There's pretty good data showing that it can regrow hair a very similar amount that Rogaine can. We just have to make sure that we're not asking patients to pay more for something than they can afford. Um, I'm also looking into platelet-rich plasma. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, interest in platelet-rich plasma. I think the challenge is we still don't have a, a lot of studies. There's uh, a couple randomized controlled trials that I've been able to find that do show a benefit. I think the challenge is the price. So the accessibility, the maintenance for something that's a long-term problem, uh, I think is still something to be solved. Do you use a lot of spironolactone in your practice as well? Great question. I do love spironolactone for women with hair loss. It's usually my first line agent before finasteride or dutasteride. Um, I also think about it for women with frontal fibrosing alopecia, so band-like hair loss across the front of the head. And I think that that's an important form of alopecia to detect since that is a scarring form of hair loss. And I think it's also a form of hair loss that is probably under-recognized in people with skin of color because it does affect the front of the scalp. I think sometimes it's um, misdiagnosed or um, the pattern is, is thought of more as traction alopecia when it's frontal fibrosing alopecia. That's an excellent point. I completely agree. Let's talk a little bit for just a minute about the future and JAK inhibitors. Sure. So I think that there's certainly a lot of excitement around JAK inhibitors because we haven't had a lot of really effective therapies for alopecia areata and the more, I would say, global um, forms of alopecia, so alopecia totalis and universalis. I think what we're looking for are drugs that are effective and safe. And by effective, we can see changes in SALT scores. So, you know, physician-rated scores of alopecia. What we need for our patients are things that they think are cosmetically acceptable for of hair regrowth. So while we can see nice changes in scores, we need them to agree with us that this is meaningful to them. And I think we're working towards that. 
Are there any additional pearls you might have to offer the clinician who's out there pulling their own hair out while they're treating their patients? I think one of the things with the alopecia areata that I learned from prepping this talk uh, was to realize that uh, Kenalog, there's a lot of diversity out there of what concentration to use when somebody comes in with alopecia areata. And uh, there was a study showing that there is no difference between 2.5 milligrams per ml to five to 10. So I tend to go lower, decrease risk of side effects, and just as good results in terms of regrowing hair. Do you have one go-to concentration? I pretty much always use 2.5 to five. Uh, if I'm not seeing really good hair regrowth at 2.5, I will go up to five. If I'm doing eyebrows, I stick with about 2.5 if I can get some hair regrowth with that. Do you ever do uh, IM Kenalog? So I tend not to use a lot of intramuscular Kenalog or deep depots. Um, I think that there is a lot more systemic involvement with that. There's a little bit of literature that for people with the more extensive form of alopecia totalis or universalis, and especially if it's in the acute form, we might be able to break that process. We might be able to interrupt it uh, from its progression and regrow some hair. But I don't tend to use it as a long-term therapy due to the side effects throughout the body on the bones, the stomach lining, et cetera. Those were all great pearls. Thank you so much for your knowledge. Your talk was fantastic, and I appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Amber. From Dermcast TV, my name's Amber. Thanks for watching.